Did you know that back in the day, in the Victorian era, it was considered the epitome of femininity for women to like faint all the time. It was just considered very feminine and, and very woman-like to constantly faint. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Not Your Model Minority. We're your host Nabila and Talasi, and today we're talking about sex and gender. Man, woman, male, female, for many of us, these binaries were all we knew growing up, and so much of our society, particularly in the West, has been organized based on these binaries. For example, pink is for girls, blue is for boys, Barbies are for girls, toy cars are for boys. But is this how it's always been? Have societies always been divided by gender? And what part did colonization, specifically European expansion, have to play in how we perceive gender? We're discussing all of this and more today. But before we get started, I'm going to throw it over to Talasi for our land acknowledgement. I want to start off by saying that gender and land are very intertwined. For many Indigenous people, their relationship with the land shapes who they are, their cultural identity, their way of life, and their gender identity. So colonization was and is a process that not only stripped Indigenous people of their traditional land, but it also took away the way that they frame gender and experience gender. So when we talk about indigenous gender identity, we need to think about how this has been impacted by colonization and land displacement. With that, I want to acknowledge that the land we are in today is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. So if you're like me, you may have been raised with the concept of the gender binary ingrained into you, with the worldview that we're all divided into male and female. In Western cultures, this is pretty entrenched, and we've structured our society based on this binary. We have separate bathrooms, separate clothing and clothing stores, toys, hair products, perfumes, even pens. You name it, we've probably separated that item by gender. And now, with gender fluidity gaining more attention, you might have heard people say that that's only a recent phenomenon. Or perhaps you believe that yourself. But today, we're going to talk about how the gender binary is perhaps more recent. If we take a trip through time, it becomes evident that the differences people notice and elevate to the status of a different category changes over time based on cultural and political contexts. In the words of historian Dr. Thomas LeCur, the differences that make a difference are historically determined. For example, a study Dr. LeCur conducted tracing back two millennia of the thinking on sex categories found that the West used to prescribe to a unisex model and transitioned into a binary sex model only in the late 18th, early 19th century, which Tulasi will talk about further. Previously, males and females were viewed as different forms of the same sex, that people had the same sex organs, the vagina was understood as an interior penis, the womb as a scrotum, and the ovaries as testicles. Being male or female meant holding a cultural role. Admittedly, Dr. LeCur's research doesn't apply across all pre-18th century societies, and there are definitely examples of societies that didn't ascribe to the one-sex model around this time. But this is a great example of how the understanding of the sex and gender binary evolved over time. It's also interesting to look at pre-colonial communities and their histories with gender fluidity. 
For example, a study of graves in an ancient Persian civilization suggests that people buried in Hasanlu in northwestern Iran didn't hold to rigid gender binaries. Rather, archaeological evidence suggests that the people of Hasanlu either believed in a third gender or saw gender as more of a spectrum rather than a dichotomy. I think sometimes a lot of people may think that gender fluidity was always this kind of completely foreign phenomenon that existed in other places, but not here. But actually, gender fluidity was very prevalent here in North America among indigenous groups prior to the arrival of European colonizers. So one of the articles I read actually stated that before colonization, there was language for alternative genders documented in over 150 different indigenous groups across North America. So gender fluidity was not an anomaly in North America at this time. Obviously, indigenous communities are very diverse and not static, so different indigenous groups frame gender in different ways. I wanted to make a note of that just because this is something that often gets completely ignored by settler academics when they talk about gender identity in indigenous communities. They conflate distinct indigenous gender systems instead of recognizing that they're all culturally specific. So with that being said, there are countless examples of gender fluidity in indigenous communities pre-colonization. One of the examples I came across were the Chippewa who had four genders. So they had masculine males, feminine females, feminine males, and masculine females. The Zuni were also documented to have a gender of people that they called Lamana, which loosely translates to man-woman. And the Navajo people had at least five different genders. What I think is pretty interesting is that there was so much variation in terms of why gender fluid indigenous people identified as gender fluid. It wasn't necessarily just about how they dressed and presented. In some indigenous groups, gender fluid people were identified as such because they performed labor and rituals associated with both men and women. So it was this mixing of social roles that deemed them to be gender fluid. The takeaway here, though, is that gender fluid indigenous people were not persecuted in their communities prior to colonization. They were well respected and often occupied very powerful roles within their communities, such as being responsible for preserving language and preserving culture. So similar to the indigenous, many South Asian cultures didn't rigidly ascribe to gender dichotomies prior to colonization. Hindu scriptures regularly identified the third gender, referred to as hijra or kinner, who were seen as demigods and historically played important roles in royal palaces as trusted advisors. There's no rigid understanding of what it means to be their gender or who can self-identify as one. Over time and through British colonization, hijras were marginalized and driven underground. But in 2014, the Supreme Court of India recognized the existence of the third gender. What's interesting to note here is that the concept of the third gender doesn't necessarily fit into the idea of what we understand in the West to be a trans woman or a trans man. Rather, it is a category of its own, often referred to as a sacred gender. These communities, which we just discussed, which are just a few of many who have a history of gender fluidity, demonstrate how gender has been understood and defined over time based on a cultural and political context. And one of the biggest drivers of the move to a sex and gender binary model was colonization. It's so interesting that in many South Asian cultures, gender fluidity was the norm, especially considering how bigoted we are, our communities are at this point in time. I mean, obviously, this is the result of colonization. But, you know, I also do think that it's about time that as a community, we take accountability for our own queer phobia. But 
I just thought it was interesting that we have this history where gender fluidity was the norm, right? Just considering the the attitudes that most people in our community have now. So Nabila and I were interested in exploring what European society was like at the time of European expansion and colonization in contrast to the rest of the world. Now, obviously, there were several waves of European colonization, and there were many European countries that acted as colonial powers throughout history. Despite this, though, European society and how it framed gender and race was uniform across the continent. Unlike the communities we just talked about, in Europe, there was a very strict gender binary, which was reinforced by Christianity and ideas about morality at the time. So basically, people were either male or female, and this was determined completely and only by their anatomy. This strict categorization of people as either male or female was actually a way to exclude women from participating in the public and economic sphere and to ensure that cisgendered heterosexual men remained in power. So the gender binary was basically created to confine women to the home and to deem them second-class citizens because of their purported fragility and lack of intelligence. And actually, scientists at the time believed that education and work would cause women to lose energy they needed in order to reproduce. So all of this was done on the basis of so-called nature or biology. Women were assigned with the task of reproduction and motherhood, which was considered to be their inherent and only role. Imagine living at this time. I feel like, like, what would you have done? I mean, we couldn't have done anything. I think we would have been burned at the stake for being witches because, you know, we have opinions or we would have been checked into an asylum for hysteria or lobotomized. So I, I guess that it's moot. Do you even feel like you'd be like as outspoken as you are now if you lived at those times? No, because we would be, like I said, we would be checked into an asylum or we would have the, our frontal lobe removed because we were hysterical women or we would, no, we would probably be burned at the stake for being witches, I think. Um, I don't even know if we would have that honor because we are also not white. So I don't really know what would happen to us. I don't want to think about it, but probably nothing good. Yeah. But what's interesting, though, like going off of what I just said, is that although European women were considered second class citizens, at the same time, white women were considered important due to the fact that they were responsible for continuing white supremacy through reproduction. So they were seen as essential, but only because they were giving birth to and nurturing white men and maintaining white heteropatriarchy. So a while ago, I read this tweet and it said that there's a reason for everything, and that reason is colonization. And that feels so apt when we talk about the gender binary. So colonizers brought the gender binary with them to other places, either to differentiate white people from other races or to enforce these binaries. For example, in the West, scientists argued that white people were superior because of their unique ability to display a visual difference between males and females and Black, Indigenous, and other people of color were regarded as sex indistinguishable. This means that when referring to women, scientists spoke exclusively of white women. Colonial Western settlers believed that high sexual dimorphism between men and women were a sign of intelligence. This is directly linked to the way enslaved Black women were treated. Unlike white women, Black women were never permitted to access domesticity and were never understood as weak or frail. It's so weird that weak or frail is like a beautiful, nice quality to have between like that's how they use it to differentiate between races. 
Did you know that back in the day, like in the Victorian era, it was considered the epitome of femininity to for women to like faint all the time? I actually, I can't believe that though. No, I'm serious. Wealthy women had fainting couches um, in their homes and like it was just considered very feminine and, and very woman-like to constantly faint. Yeah. And if you didn't faint, you're like inferior or, or not a woman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So because Black women weren't seen as weak or frail, they were forced to reproduce and conduct constant manual labor. And this differentiation between men and women increased the more a society was quote-unquote civilized, meaning scientists believe that a society's progressed from savagery towards civilization over time, the physical distinction between males and females also increased. A good example of this enforcement of the gender binary in colonized societies that were, again, quote-unquote, civilized through colonization over time is the Yoruba. According to Nigerian scholar Dr. Oyewumi, the category of women didn't exist in Yoruba land, a small cultural region in West Africa, prior to European colonization. While the Yoruba peoples acknowledged distinctive reproductive roles, they did so without using them to establish social hierarchy and the distribution of power. As Dr. Oyewumi argues, the creation of women as a category was one of the very first accomplishments of the colonial state. The Yoruba people were forcibly assimilated into Western patriarchy, which regulated marriage, divorce, pregnancy, and legally defined women as second class to their husbands. The new colonial authority only recognized male leaders and refused to acknowledge the existence of female chiefs. Women were denied access to education and discriminated in the taxation system. Basically, as European colonizers civilized these societies and implemented their own systems, the gender binary grew stronger. And it's important to note that we're not suggesting that gender binaries didn't exist pre-European colonization. But an analysis of communities like the Yoruba demonstrate how gender was not considered a natural phenomenon in many pre-colonial societies, and that the gender binary is a creation that was enforced on many colonized regions. I think it's also interesting to look at how ideas of masculinity have shifted over time. So like Nabila mentioned earlier, during the period of European colonization, there was a strict gender binary. However, at the same time, masculinity at this time was very restrained and quote-unquote polished. To be a successful and masculine man at this time meant that a man had to be successful at home with his wife and children, but also be educated and be able to have intellectual and thoughtful conversations with other men about things they had read. It's so stupid. I don't know why, but that image is kind of funny. Yeah. No, actually, um, when, I, when I was reading up on this, I, I read that, you know, wealthy gentlemen, that's how they identified. At the time, what they would do is they would read in order to keep up with their peers. And then they would go to cafes and talk about what they had read. <laughs> so performative. <laughs> no. Um, anyway. But then in the early 20th century in the U.S., there was a move towards making America the greatest empire in the world. American scientists and policymakers at the time believed that the U.S. was destined to become the epitome of a white supremacist master civilization. And they believed that this pursuit required the most 
perfect manliness and most perfect womanliness. So this resulted in reframing American masculinity as aggressive, primitive, and inherently violent. They, be they believed white men had an inherent genocidal urge that deserved and needed to be expressed and that they had to invade foreign lands in order to achieve the greatest manhood. I'm rolling my eyes so hard um, talking about this, but this is what they believed at the time. Um, so that's yet another example of how the gender binary not only subjugated women, but also promoted racial violence. I think that's also such a great example of how the gender binary evolved over time. And like as much as scientists, and again, I'm using quotes, say it's, you know, natural and linked to biology, like just how much it's not. So this new study that was conducted by uh, advertising insights agency, Big Eye, found that 50% of Gen Zers believe that traditional gender roles and binary gender labels are outdated. And interestingly, an even higher percentage of millennials, 56%, believe the same. So it's interesting to juxtapose these stats about newer generations rejecting the gender binary with our review of gender fluidity across history. Gender fluidity is not a new concept, and yet it is younger people rejecting the gender binary, thereby making it appear to be a new concept. So what do you think has changed in recent decades? It's interesting that these studies reveal that Gen Z and so many millennials are rejecting the gender binary, because while that's awesome, it's also confusing because gender reveal parties, they have become this huge thing in the last, I think, five years or so, and they're immensely popular. And I have no data to back this up, but I, I'm pretty sure that they are the most popular amongst millennials. What do you think about gender reveal parties? I feel like I'm going to piss people off. I feel like they're outdated. Um, I want to say they're stupid. They are stupid. First of all, people have too many parties for their children these days, like when they give birth and for weddings. There, I said it, okay? Like, unpopular opinion, but it had to be said. But secondly, I mean, it doesn't really make sense because you're conflating sex and gender. You have no way of knowing what the gender of your baby will be before it is born and it can speak. So really what you're celebrating is the biological sex of your baby. And even then, like those two things aren't like binaries either, right? Exactly. And also, I think my problem is I find that oftentimes these days people will use words like problematic and you know, not being politically correct to condemn things like gender re reveal parties. My problem with a word like problematic is that it kind of makes it sound like the problem is just that it is offensive or that it will hurt someone's feelings. But the thing is, gender reveal parties are beyond just hurting people's feelings. They're harmful because they exclude trans and non-binary people, right? It normalizes the, the gender binary. And the consequence of erasing trans and non-binary people is that it just further justifies violence against them. When you erase the existence of people, it just makes it that much more justifiable and, and normalized to, you know, subject them to violence and malice, right? So this is not about being politically correct or not being problematic or not hurting people's feelings. Your gender revealed parties are harmful. Now, 
Of course, single-handedly, they're not responsible for queer phobia, but they are complicit in it. It plays a part in the in the larger picture. Yeah, and it's not just like violence from from other people, right? Like the effect that it can have on the mental health and well-being of your children is also very high. I think there is only one right position, okay? Because again, like I was saying earlier, I do think that they are they're harmful. I think they contribute to the larger systemic issue that is queer phobia in our society. The first step in order to eliminate systemic violence against a group of people is to make sure that they are included and to make them be seen by the rest of society. And gender reveal parties do the exact opposite of that. It's just my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, just to add a little bit of of hope, there are parents who are shifting away from raising their children in strict gender roles. Another interesting thing that came out of this study is that across generations, 52% of people do agree that gender is not binary. So I think it's not just, I mean, it's not just millennials and Gen Zers, even though they are the majority of who don't believe that there's a sex binary or gender binary, but it is changing. That does give me some hope. Those figures are a lot more, they're a lot higher than I anticipated. Yeah, same. When I was younger, like in high school, when people would say that I was like a man, it was something I was proud of at the time because it made me feel you know, these ideas of masculinity and femininity, like all the positive attributes are associated with masculinity, right? And I would go out of my way to not appear to be feminine. And if someone said that I had qualities that were like a man, it was something that took pride in. But it was like only over time when I I realized how problematic that was. I still do that. I think we talked about this before, about the extent of our ingrained misogyny. I think we both have this in common. You're right. Just like you, in the past, whenever anyone has conferred any type of qualities or attributes to me that are typically associated with men, I felt happy about that. By contrast, I did not want to be thought of as emotional or nurturing or any quality that is typically associated with women. Now, it took me several years to realize that this is ingrained misogyny, right? I think it's complicated because ideally right? We want to get to a point where all qualities and attributes are equally respected, right? And also, of course, there are no uniquely female qualities and uniquely male qualities. There is no binary like that. That is what we just talked about. But regardless of that, ideally, we would want to be at a place where, you know, not, no quality or attribute is deemed less strong or less respectable or less valued than the other. But we're not there yet. I, I, totally get that. I remember, and it's still hard, how hard it was for me to show any emotion, like genuine emotion, like cry in front of anyone. And even people that are very close to me, like, you know, my friends, uh, my partner, my my family, because I just thought it, you'd, I'd be perceived as weak. And yet in my relationships with other people, I never perceived them crying as weak, but it was something like I held so close to me and I I held myself up to that standard that I didn't hold to anyone else. And that like, I mean, that can do a number on you. I mean, it's not crazy because things haven't really changed much. Like we spent the last couple of minutes talking about how in the Victorian era and subsequent periods of colonization, women were perceived as frail and intellectually inferior because, and it always comes down to this, because they can reproduce and because of their biology and their anatomy. And 
that's still true today. You know, I just, uh, I, when I was preparing for this, do you remember the big women pens? I just know because I just thought of that because because that was like just a few years ago. It wasn't even that long ago. It just like tells you how little things have changed when I don't know any woman who's ever had a hard time holding a regular pen. That's a whole other topic. How ridiculously some products are gendered like Vaseline and shampoo. Of course, real men have dehydrated, really bad skin that is dying. Didn't you know that? Yeah, I saw a pack of chips that was like geared towards men. That was like the it was something about like it was really spicy, I yeah. think. And it like the back description. I don't know why I was reading a bag of chips, but the back description <laughs> said something like, you know, if you're a real man, you can handle like this level of spice or something. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like how far will we go to like reinforce these gender binaries? I think most of us have heard at some point or another that gender and the gender binary is a social construct and that it's distinct from biological sex. But I don't think many people know that the gender binary was created through the process of colonization in order to subjugate women and gender non-conforming people and to promote white supremacy. I definitely didn't know this for a long time. The gender binary today is one of the worst and most enduring legacies of colonialism. I say this because as we discussed earlier, the normalization of the gender binary has resulted in queer people being subjected to persecution and horrific violence. And this is something that continues to be true today. The gender binary not only reinforces harmful and really boring gender stereotypes, but it completely invalidates the existence of anyone who falls outside of the binary. And like I said earlier, when you negate someone's existence, it makes it that much easier to justify violence against them. This is why it's crucial that we challenge the gender binary. And like I said earlier, again, this is so beyond just protecting people's feelings. So I think it's really important that all of us challenge our ingrained beliefs about gender, including Nabila and I, clearly, about what we were talking about earlier, and that think seriously about the tangible harms that these beliefs cause. Also, follow gender fluid and non-binary activists on social media. Read their work. People like Alak Menon, Jonathan Benaz, Jacob Tobia, and India Moore are doing really important and groundbreaking work. So we hope you found this episode informative and interesting and that perhaps you learned something new and that perhaps you will reconsider that gender reveal party on Instagram. Until next time, stay critical and stay engaged. Not Your Model Minority is hosted by Nabila Khan and Talasi Kandia. Special thanks to Himmel Kandiker, Simran Dillon, and Kunal Tandon for helping us produce this podcast. Our theme music is by Pink Marble. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at NYMM Podcast. You can also visit our website, notyourmodelminority.ca, to subscribe to our podcast on your platform of choice, such as Apple or Spotify, as well as find accessible versions of our episodes. Thanks for listening.